So if you're watching live, it's a joy to have you here. Would you give them a hand clap? Those who are watching. And uh, <clears throat> let me say, if you are watching as well live, I actually have some sermon notes that we're doing now every week. We send those out by email. If you go to our church website, you'll find a download for that. And it really is a great to have you here. Please share the link if you're watching this live. We're, we're getting... Uh, I'm like over half a million people watching the videos now every month, which is amazing. So really grateful for that. Good. If you have a Bible today, I'm going to go again to Luke 24. And uh, we've been talking for about three weeks now about the end times. We just say the end times. And I'm not sure what your reaction is when somebody brings up that subject. I have to confess, I know lots of really weird people who talk about the end times. You're blessed if you don't. And like many of you, I've been a Christian for many years. I've been a Christian 39 years now. And I, I know some people who get so obsessed with this subject, they get a little bizarre. None of you guys, obviously. <laughs> but... Uh, it's interesting, I've spent a lot of my life in ministry as well as kind of like a traveling minister and evangelist, and I think quite quickly anybody doing that learns if, you're, if you go into a different church every night, there's some things you don't talk about that much, because what you might talk about in church one, you're there in a different church the next night and they don't agree with that. And Christians, somebody once said the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight over. And, um, and I, I, I've said this in the previous two weeks, but I do know many people, and frankly, I've been one of them at seasons in my life, who simply say, this thing's too complicated and too contentious that I just won't go there. I'll just kind of ignore it. It'll all work out. It'll all pan out in the end. Jesus is coming back. That's all we need to know, and I'm okay with that. Can anybody relate to that, honestly? I can. And yet... And yet, and yet, if I'm honest, even though that's where I've been for many years, I have to say, if I want to be honest and integrous and consistent with Scripture, I don't think that's what God, I don't think that's the attitude the Lord wants us to have. I think He wants us to be a people who have a hungry heart, who seek Him. And again, in uh, Luke 24, Jesus is walking with these two men on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus rebukes them. In a way, it's like Jesus says, I sent you these prophets, and you never actually read them. He says, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken concerning me. Hmm. You know, I don't want Jesus one day to say, Graham, I love you, but fool and slow of heart. I actually think the Lord is looking for, if you only grasp what I'm saying right now, this is worth grasping, guys. I don't think the Lord wants us to be a people who say, oh, this will all work out, oh, it's too complicated. I really don't think he wants us to be people who try and work him out with our brain and draw some crazy complicated chart and then fight with other people if they don't agree with us. But I think he's looking, I think the key to the end times is having a hungry heart. The key is seeking Jesus. The key is not seeking the Lord and trying to work everything out 
and be really clever and get a calculator and work all weird and wonderful numbers out. But the key is to be a, a lover of Jesus and a seeker of Jesus. The key is to be a wise virgin, to be one whose eyes are on the master. And he says, Lord, I'm looking for your coming. Would you agree with me there? You know, the first sermon I ever preached in this church as pastor of this church, 10 or 11 years ago, I forget now, was uh, I preached the same thing the day we started NEF. Linda will probably remember it. I think I called it the three H's. I preached on hunger, humility, and honor. And can I say, I think that's the key to the book of Revelation. I can close my message down now and let's have an early lunch. And all God's, no, forget it. (laughs) The key isn't trying to be cleverer than it is. The key is coming with humility to, the, to the God's Word and saying, Lord, I don't think I'm cleverer than everybody else. God opens the eyes of the humble. And when we come and we're, we're not thinking we're better than anybody else, God will give us revelation. God gives revelation to the hungry. When we're saying, not, Lord, I want to figure this all out, but, Lord, I want more of you. I want to know your heart. I want to catch what you're doing. I want to pray and cooperate with what you're doing. And I actually think honor is a real key to this subject as well. And I want to be honest with you guys. I've been watching, I've been preparing this for a few weeks or months now, off and on, watching a lot of videos or different people who teach on this subject. And if there's one theme, if there's one characteristic I see in 90 seven percent of everybody teaching on the end times it's a lack of honor for others i was watching a guy this morning in the shower he wasn't in the shower with me i'm in the shower he's on my ipad you know like four keys for why he thinks i won't mention the guy's name but he never opened his bible once all he said was how this group's wrong and this group's wrong and this is i think god doesn't give one person all of the revelation And we need each other. And sometimes we've got to go to other, not, I'm not talking about weird group. I'm talking about people who love God and love the Bible and are born again. I think at times we've actually got to go to other viewpoints on this and say, is it possible they've seen something that I don't see? Rather than like, nope, I've got it all and everybody else is wrong. Can I say, whenever we adopt this, I've got it right and everybody else is wrong, we in trouble. Yeah. And I believe the Lord is looking for hungry people. Again, I just want to set this up today. And frankly, I want this to be the first thing anybody watches on this video. My goal today, I mean, I'm going to tell you at the end of my message how I see the end times, but I don't want you to believe what I believe. My goal is that we would be Bereans. Acts 17 says Paul came to Berea, and the people of Berea were were noble of heart. It says they heard Paul preach, and then they went to the Bible to see if these things were so. And my goal isn't to get a bunch of Grahamites. Turn to your neighbor and say, thank God. (laughs) My goal isn't you've got to agree with me, because I don't always agree with me. And if you come back in five years, I hope... I've got more revelation than I've got now. And I hope I see things a little clearer than I see now. I don't want to write a book on this and then like park and then I've got to defend it for the rest of my life. Because sometimes what we know is right, but God says there's more you can know. 
And my, my goal even this morning is not to tell you how to believe, but actually to talk about why do we believe what we believe? What's our framework? How should we even approach this? How can we begin to be biblical people as we look at this? Does that make sense? So if you want me to give you a wonderful chart and explain everything, I'm sorry. I don't have one for you, and I'm not interested in anyone else's. I actually think the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. It's about a revelation of Jesus. And if you read this book and you get locked into plagues and bowls and frogs and whatever, you're missing the point. My question is, do you have a revelation of Jesus? So I really want to do five things today, and then we'll have lunch, okay? <laughs> Come on, number one, it's strange in a way, but I actually want to speak about why do we believe what we believe. Sometimes why we believe something is more important than what we believe. Number two, I want to talk about, sounds complicated, but systematic theology, like systems we come up with for helping us understand things. Number three, I'm going to give you the four main ways Christians have seen this subject in the last 2,000 years. Number four, I want to give you some of the pros and cons of each of those viewpoints. And then number five, I'll tell you how I see this. Does that work? Good. Let's start. Number one, let me take my wonderful jacket off. This jacket is amazing. If you ever need to fly, the collars are so big that, um, can, yeah. Come on, let me ask you a question, guys. Why do we believe what we believe? Now, just, just, just humor me, if you will, but track with me for a little bit. I know, I'm, I'm like most of you, I'm, I'm an evangelical. If you, if you go to the average evangelical, why do you believe this? The standard answer is because the Bible says so. Agreed? Can I suggest to you there are other reasons why we believe something? Years ago, when I was a young man, I heard John Wimber, who was a real great man of God, teaching, and he was actually talking about cessationalists, people who don't believe in speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, those people who believe that's all passed away, and they're wrong. But what he was saying is sometimes we guys who do believe in these things, we go to our friends with an open Bible, and we try to have an intellectual, like a biblical argument about why that theory is wrong and why they should. And what he was saying is, and I didn't agree with him when I heard this, but now I do. He said, often, the reason they reject these things have nothing to do with the Bible. Sometimes they've just never, they've seen so many poor examples of people who do things, they, they throw it away. I was once in India years ago, about 20 years ago, in a village in India. And uh, I was there for three nights, and on night two, there was a deaf and dumb girl who got healed. The whole village gave their life to Jesus on the second night. It was awesome, like about 3,000 people. On the third night, I had Holy Spirit night. And the whole village got baptized in the Holy Spirit, all speaking in tongues. It was wonderful. And I'll never forget, after the third night, eating with the local pastor. He was a Salvation Army pastor. He'd, he'd been in that village for years, had a little church of eight to ten people. And this guy is there like, Graham, the whole town's come to Jesus. And he's just weeping and rejoicing. And we're having this wonderful meal with him and some of the team I've come with. And then this guy turned to me and he said, isn't it wonderful, 3,000 people baptized in the Spirit? And I said, yeah. And then he said to me, he said, Graham... 
in about three years, I want to get baptized in the Holy Spirit too. And I put down my banana leaf. Like three years. Like, dude, let's do it now. Let's not finish the meal. And he's like, no, 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 no. And in the end, he, his wife came in and like said, tell him the truth to, to the husband. In the end, the guy said, you know, if I speak in tongues, I get thrown out of my denomination. Now, in three years, I retire. I, I personally think that's a really terrible reason not to speak in tongues. I was like, I won't tell if you won't. <laughs> Here's what I want you to catch, though. Sometimes we think we're believing because I'm, I've studied the Bible for many years and I believe this. Yeah, maybe. Can I give you real quick? Here's seven other reasons why we believe things. Number one, we believe things because we've never heard any other presentation. Come on, it's true. Sometimes we've grown up in a, in a circle and they teach, this is the way to look at it. Come on, look at the image. How many of you have seen one of these before? Do you see a beautiful young lady in her 20s? Or her grandma? <laughs> can you both see, can you see both? Keep looking. If you look, you'll see a beautiful, distinguished lady. And uh, if you keep looking, you'll see, I'm trying to be polite here. <laughs> you'll see a babushka. <laughs> My point is you can see the same thing. Come on, we'll come back to that in a minute. Come on, number one, many of us, we've only ever heard it taught. I've gone to my Catholic friends in France, and they've never heard any other presentation of the Bible. And they say, we believe this because we've read the Bible. Yeah, sometimes we believe things because that's all we've ever heard. Come on, number two, this is really true, guys. A lot of us believe things because we really love a particular teacher, and we really... And I'm, I'm not picking on one group here. If you're like a, a word of faith person, hey, Kathy, someone like that. You go to somebody like Kenneth. I love Kenneth Hagin. An amazing man of God. And what happens sometimes is we go, well, I love this man or this woman so much, and they're such a great man of God that this is complicated. I'll just believe what they believe. It's true. Years ago, let me be careful the details, but not too far from here, I spent an evening with, in a pastor's home, and I remember this pastor saying to me, Graham, I'm really convinced that the church goes through the tribulation. And I was like, great, okay, nice. And I, I said to him, I'd love to hear your reasons, like you're thinking on that, and what verses convince you? And this guy got like a little bit defensive, and I, I said, I'm just really interested. I, I'd love, I love hearing different points of view. And in the end, this man said, and this is a great man of God, he said, look, I need to be honest, I really love Mike Bickle. And he said, Mike Bickle's one of the best teachers in America, and I agree, I think he is. And he said, Mike Bickle studied this out, that's what he teaches, so I'm going to follow him. Now, I don't think that's wrong as long as we see it, we're aware of it. The danger is, if we go around thinking, I believe the Bible, when we're really following this person. And I'm not picking on anybody. I love Bill Johnson. I think he's an amazing man of God. 
I followed, I used to listen to Bill Johnson before anybody had ever heard of Reading, Bethel, before Jesus Culture had ever bought a guitar string. Like, I just, I love this man. He'd weep as he preached. He's a lover of Jesus and a, and a wonderful guy. And, but my point is, if you follow him, you'll probably end up believing in another view. I'll come. My point is, are we believing it because the Bible says it or because Graham says it or somebody else says it? Come on, real quick, other reasons. Number three, sometimes we believe something just because our community believes it. If you spend time in a certain community and everybody sees the young lady in the picture, you'll, you'll end up going, there's a young lady in the picture. That's what it is. That's all. And, and at times, we're just reflecting the collective viewpoint of the people we walk with. Sometimes, number four, we believe things because of our revelation of God. I know people have got such a revelation of the goodness and the kindness of God that they end up reading that into things like the book of Revelation. There's other people who've got such a revelation of the holiness of God, God's hatred of sin, you know, the God, the judgment, which is true, and they read that into Scripture. Does that make sense? The Bible says we should know the goodness and the severity of God, both and, not either or. Hmm. Sometimes we approach scriptures like this just because of our own personality. Can I say this as a newly minted America? I love America. America is, I think America is the most positive nation on earth. Really, maybe you guys don't notice that. Take a trip. America's a can-do place. Seriously, it is. America's the land of Elon Musk, even though he's from South Africa. My point is, like, this is a nation of pioneers, and if you go to an American and tell them they can't do something, they will try and go bankrupt and try, but they'll probably end up succeeding. And I, I love that. This is a very positive culture. Hi, Leah, if you're watching, but Leah would agree with me. France is a really negative culture. Do you know, France, we never say the weather is good. We say the weather's not bad. C'est pas mal. We never say something's good. We say, c'est pas terrible. You know, it's not terrible. And in France, they grade every kid at school, younger kids, from 1 to 20. It's nearly impossible to get more than 10 out of 20. It's like they have this ethos. They don't want kids thinking they're doing really well. I'm not, I love France. I, mean, I love it, I love it, but it is kind of a negative place. There are places like in Eastern Europe, in Russia, uh, Miller's probably not here today, but she'd probably agree with that. Do you know, people like the Russian people have suffered so much for hundreds of years, like under the Tsars, under the October Revolution, Stalin. If you've never read the Gulag Acapelica, read it, it'll break your heart. My point, like, sometimes suffering gets so much into a culture, and it's like what we've grown up with, and we don't expect anything else, that we come to God's Word, and we read into it the things that are going on in the inside of us. Hmm. Come on, two more, but these are really important. This one's actually really scary, but it's true. Often, people believe what they believe about the end times because they've got a vested interest in believing that thing. 
Okay, let me give you an example, and I'm not trying to be cruel. I grew up in the Assemblies of God in England, and I love those guys. I used to work for the Assemblies of God when I was 17, 18, worked for them full-time, planted churches, and I preach in hundreds of Assemblies of God churches, love them. Some of my best friends are Assemblies of God pastors. And this might have changed in the last few years, but I don't think so. If you're an Assemblies of God pastor, you sign a paper saying the only message you'll ever preach on the end times is a pre-trib, pre-millennial point of view. Now, that's okay. I, many people believe that. That's awesome. But what, what often happens is you get people like I was, like 17, 18, go to Bible school and, you know, take on their first church and they assign, I'll never do this. And then as they get older, they begin studying a little more. Can I, I'm not mocking, please hear my heart when I say this. Do you know what? If you're a 45-year-old pastor with three young kids, it's actually really hard to risk being thrown out of your church, your pension, your house, if you live in some parsonage, over some little minor doctrinal passage. And I'm just telling you the truth, guys, because I'm, that's what I've done for years, stayed in pastors. I know lots of them who never preach kind of what they really think, but we'll go like, yeah, I can see some of the weak points in that argument, but I can't say that publicly. Now, if you think I'm picking on the assembly, I know friends who've gone to places like IHOP, Mike Bickles thing in Kansas City, and I love those guys, they're passionate, we're talking about prayer and worship, but if you go there, if you begin questioning their point of view, I know friends who've sold their houses, moved there, you'll be called in for a little chat. And I'm not being critical. They'll, they'll basically say to people, look, God has called us to preach this message, that we are going through the tribulation. And they'll say, we, we just can't have you, 25-year-old, writing a blog that asks questions about that and sowing discourse. And they'll kind of say, you've either got to adopt that point of view or we love you, but you need to leave. And at times, if you've been there and you've embedded your future and your money and your friends, it's really hard to do that. And so often when people say we believe this, you know, there's other reasons going on. Everybody's very solemn this morning. <laughs> so often somebody will adopt the point of view and they'll write a book and they'll have the conference and all these kind of things. And it's like they're so invested in one thing that they've closed the doors that they could be missing it on other places. Come on, one last thing, and we'll move forward here. But uh, has anybody had a tooth extracted recently? Oh, God bless you. <laughs> I think I remember taking Sandy last year, earlier this year. You know, when they, it's like a factory, some of these places. You know, when teens have their wisdom teeth taken out, there's like one teen who walks in every 12 minutes and then sort of staggers out half days, you know, <laughs> 20 minutes later and... Uh, Come on, I, I don't want to gross you out here, but, but think about it. You know, especially those molars at the back, the roots are bigger than the tooth, aren't they? And, and just being honest, at times to like the, the, the violence, if I could call it that, of ripping up some big root system. Here's where I'm saying, some of us, we've so embedded our life around a certain way of looking at something that we don't want to embrace the pain of going, could I be wrong about this? And sometimes the trauma, literally good choice of word, of, of actually going like, could I be completely wrong about this? I know pastors who've taught for 50 years speaking in tongues is of the devil. And sometimes they've got to go through this violence internally to realize, no, it isn't. 
Come on, I'll finish with I spoke about that guy, John Wimber. John Wimber used to be a, a Quaker pa- pastor with his wife, who is the main preacher in California. And for years, they would teach loud and clear and strong against the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, healing tongues, whatever. They had a procedure. If any kid came in their church and said, I think I should speak in tongues, you know, you'd get one warning and you were out. And this man's wife, Carol Wimber, she had a, a, one of her top sermons was seven reasons speaking in tongues was of the devil. And one night in the late 70s, she's having a dream. And in a dream, she's preaching her favorite sermon, seven reasons why speaking in tongues is of the devil. But in a dream, when she came to point number seven, she couldn't remember what it was. And in a dream, she's like racking her brain, like, what was that point? What was that point? And she kind of wakes up still, you know, in that emotional state of what was it? And she turns to her husband and wakes him up to say, what was point number seven? And bursts out speaking in tongues. (laughs) Now, I think that's great, but... She actually talks about the trauma she went through. She had to go through a big season of repentance, of realizing, God, I have crushed people for years. I've taught against your word. And then she went through a big season of going back through the Bible all again and saying, what does it actually say? What does it really say? Not what have I been taught, it says. What does it actually say? And then this glorious season of worship and loving God. But my point is, at times, if we're not willing to allow God to uproot, he said to Jeremiah, you'll uproot and then you'll plant. And I, I want to suggest to you, at times, we who love God, we come to God's word and we go, I'm a Bible person. Like, yeah, maybe. And we've got a lot of other things going on. Hmm. Is that Okay. Not condemning anybody. What I'm saying is we should actually say, Lord, are there other things happening in my life before that? Come on, number two, let's talk about systematic theology. Um, Can I, full disclosure, I am a man. What is a man? I know you're not allowed to say that on YouTube, but in all my, here's the point. I'm very logical. I'm a guy. If you come to me with a problem, I want to fix you. Francis will, will bond at the end in a non-verbal way over food or mechanics or whatever. <laughs> you know, that's how my brain is. If you come to me with a problem, I'm going to love on you for five minutes and say, right, let's figure this out. You know, let's, uh, let's, let's, sorry, let's do uh... Now, Now, I, forgive me, I'm generalizing. Like most men think a little bit more in boxes. Most women think in balls of wool. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. And if somebody comes to see Leah and I, I want to fix them. And Leah wants to say, oh, like, tell me your story. And I've got it. I'm not, just give me the facts. I know enough. Let's let's solve the thing. And uh, so I, now I have to confess, even more than the average Joe, hi Joe. um, Like that's how my brain works anyway. I, I love figuring things out. I love coming to God's word and saying, okay, this means this and this means this. If I probably wasn't a preacher, I think I would have been a lawyer. I have that kind of mind. I like constricting an argument and going into something. If you talk to me and you come in and say, well, she said, stop, who's she? Where was she? Like, that's how my brain works. And that's okay, because that's how God made me. But I want to suggest to you something. Think back. 
If you look at Jewish culture, or a lot of the early church, they did not approach Scripture like we have to work out some perfect system to explain everything. And they had a much more organic approach to Scripture that said, we'll, we'll sort of work our way through this, and we, we can have this thing that's true, and this thing that's true, and this thing that's true. And if we ever find ourselves in the place where this is true, but this is true, but, and we can't fit them together, we'll go, maybe God's bigger than I am. Again, just track with me, guys. One of the things that happened in the Reformation, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwigli, Jan Hus, people like this, is the Protestants got very much into this idea, no, we need, if we're gonna, if we're gonna help people out of the Catholic mess, sorry, but all the superstition and the, the, the weird and wonderful wacky bell and smell teaching, we need to create systems so that we can communicate truth well. Now, was that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it was a really good thing. I think people like Martin Luther realized, if I'm going to teach people we're all sinners and Christ paid and the blood of Jesus and you need a personal I need to take this scripture, this scripture, and this scripture and make a system out of them. Does that make sense? And people came up with, basically Protestants and then evangelicals came up with what we call, what theologians call systematic theology or a system of theology. And we like neat, clean, glorious systems where we can answer every question. Now, is that wrong? No. And there are, there are books in the Bible, like when you read the book of Romans, that's the best way of approaching it. Paul writes the book of Romans like a lawyer. He makes a case. He talks about the law and the, the futility of the law and the sin of man and Christ coming. And he, he creates like a, an argument, a case, like a lawyer. But there are other books in the Bible that you're not meant to read them that way. Don't read the Song of Solomon like you read the book of Romans. <laughs> Seriously. It's not meant to be read that way. And there are things that we, one of the dangers in the Protestant thinking is when they came across verses that said, God chose us before the foundation of the world, he predestined us. And then you get other verses that says, whosoever will may come. And what a lot of the Protestants did is they developed a system and they, they, got, they fell so in love with the system that they started ignoring verses that contradict things. And if you go to most Calvinist groups, they will never talk about a whole bunch of verses. But if you go to most Arminianist groups, they won't talk about other verses. And the danger is this, we fall so in love with our system of understanding the Bible. And we're, we're, make, we're teaching and making disciples of our system. Instead of going, sometimes God's bigger than we are. I am a both-and Christian, not an either. I read the verses that says he chose me before the foundation of the world. I underline them and go, rock on. Amen. And then I read the verses that says, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him would not perish. And I go, rock on. Amen. And both are true. Some people are so narrow-minded, they can look through a keyhole with one eye. I think about it. My point is... There, there are things, there are books in the Bible that God wants to expand our thinking. And I think if we come with these very narrow 
frankly, man-made systems that we impose on Scripture, they work up to a point. And what I have done, I just want to be honest with you, I, I've spent a lot of time looking at all the main, like, viewpoints on, and I think all of them have some truth in them, but all of them begin to fall apart if you make them more important than the whole truth. And I, I actually, it's just my nature. I love finding people who believe this view or that view. And I love asking them questions. What about this verse? And what about this verse? And how do you see this? And my experience is most people, when they buy into one view, they don't want to talk with anybody else. They never want anybody to question them on that view. And I think that's wrong and immature. You guys are looking at me strangely today. <laughs> I think we should be okay being challenged. If what we believe is right, it's okay that some challenges on it. And I actually don't think we need some perfect system where we work out the answer to every little thing. I think sometimes we've got to be okay holding things in tension and saying, I don't see all of the truth yet, but I love you, Jesus, and as I keep walking with you, you'll give me more and more and more light. Okay? Come on. Number three. Let me talk about the four ways people have read the book of Revelation in the last 2,000 years. Can I get four volunteers? <laughs> Matt, John, Kim, one more. Linda, can I borrow you? Come on, get these four guys out here. Why don't we just stand in a row? I just, I want to keep you awake. I want you to... <laughs> Come on, they just... that way. Come on, look, look at the lady again on the thing. There's, sometimes we can look at the same image through different lights. And here's, over the last 2,000 years, I'm generalizing here, but here's, this is how the church has looked on the book of Revelation. Number one, there's a system called idealism. Say idealism. idealism. Number two, there's a system called historicism. Number three, this is the only one most, most Christians have ever heard of in America. <laughs> he just got raptured. <laughs> Number three, there's one called futurism. Futurism. And then there's one called preterism. I know, it's a little weird, but let me say it again for the video. Come on, we've got idealism, historicism, futurism, and John. <laughs> preterism. What, what do they believe? Well, if you get Linda to read the book of Revelation, she's an idealist. She'll say, it's all about ideas. It's about images and metaphors and similes. God wanted to teach the church a lesson, and he gave us like this Dungeons and Dragons book with all of these images. And they kind of represent something-ish, but whenever she, it's, it's the fight against good and bad. It's like reading the lion, the witch, and the, and the beast comes out of the sea and all of these things. And, and there are people who, a lot of the people in the church have read the book of Revelation in that way and said, it's just all about images and ideas. I'll come back and make a few comments. Historicist. A historicist comes to the book of Revelation and says, the book of Revelation covers the whole of history or church history. It starts with John in the island of Patmos, and it ends in the New Jerusalem. And what an historicist would say is maybe if you're reading Revelation 10, you're reading about the Crusades in the, the first century. Maybe if you're in chapter 15, you're reading about the Reformation and 
you know, Martin Luther and the things like that, and that it follows the course of history. Yeah? A futurist, this is the only view most people teach in America, says it's all about the future. None of this has happened. It's all a prophecy about the things that will happen. That's the view most of us have heard. A preterist, preterism, preterism, we'd use the word previous, same Latin word. It means that which has already happened. And what a preterist would say is everything or a lot of the things in the book of Revelation have already happened. That maybe they were prophecies to John when John got them, but they were about the things that happened in the first century. And we shouldn't be looking forward. We should actually be looking back and say, oh yeah, God did this, 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 this. So does that make sense? Four views. Let me quickly go over them again. Number one, is the, is the book of Revelation full of ideas? Yes, it is. I, I agree with some of this view, but I don't agree. I think it's more than just ideas. I think there's something God wants to say that's bigger than just good versus bad and, you know, beasts and, and you know, I think there's something more than that. But there's a danger in trying to take everything too literally. Come on, Jesus says, I am the door. Would you agree? So do you have hinges, Lord? What kind of door are you? It's an image. And it's not wrong that we look at the book of Revelation and go, God's using images. I don't think that's all he's saying, but it's some of what he's saying. Historicist. I think there's a lot of truth in this version of the thing. Well, firstly, the book of Revelation did start with John nearly 2,000 years ago. It does end with Jesus, you know, in the New Jerusalem. Personally, I think there's some truth, but it's not the whole truth. You know, I think God loves America, but I don't think America's even in the book of Revelation. I think he's talking mainly to the Jewish people. And sometimes we love our own culture so much we see our, God didn't give us the prophecy of everything that will happen in the whole world. He's writing primarily to people in the Middle East at a time. So I think this does cover some of history, but not all of history. Futurism. Does the book of Revelation teach about the future? Yes, it does. I mean, if somebody, if John comes and says, it's all happened, I go, so Jesus has already returned? No, 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 no. It's obvious that some of this is about the future. I think there's a danger in thinking it's all about the future. I think some of it's in the past. And, and I would say the same thing to this view. Is, is, there a, is there a power? Is it possible some of these things have already happened? I think that's true. Come on, real quick, let me go with you here. There's, there's another passage about the end times people read a lot. Matthew 24, Luke 11. And that passage starts when Jesus goes to his disciples and he basically says, this temple will be torn down, not one stone will stand. He speaks about judgment that's coming on Israel. And if you look at the scriptures, just read it carefully, the disciples say, when will it happen? And Jesus turns to the disciples in about 30 AD and says, your generation will see these things happen. And if you look at what Jesus said, it all happened perfect in about 70 AD. Now the danger there is, I think in that same passage, Jesus also talks about things that will happen at the end of the earth, at the end of the age. The sun will turn dark. You know, all of the world will see that. And those things have not happened. So before I get rid of these four guys, 
I'll tell you, here's, here's what I do. Can I put you guys in a little row? Put Linda first and... It's like a little train, isn't it? <laughs> My point is, I don't go, this is a bad view and this is... I want to look at God's Word and says, what can this view teach me about God's Word? And what can this view teach me about God's Word? And what can this view teach me about God's Word? And what can God's view teach me about God's Word? And sometimes I think Matt's right saying this is about the future. And sometimes John's right saying, actually, some of these things might have already happened. And I think whenever we wed ourselves, no, Kim's the only one right. Well, we love Kim, but not that much. <laughs> Come on, bless you guys. Give him a hand clap when you do that. So, how should we interpret these things? Hallelujah. Again, nearly done here, but let me tie this up with a hungry heart. I think it's great to be around different points of view. I had a guy writing about me who used to be part of this church on the internet here recently. Graham doesn't believe in the rapture. Can I, can I confess? I believe in the rapture. I actually don't know anybody who doesn't believe in the rapture. In fact, I'm going to be one of the first to go. <laughs> and I want to say to that guy who's been writing horrible things about me, I've got a message for you. We love you, dude. I mean, I really mean that. We love you. Our arms are out towards you. Jesus loves you. And uh, let's not, you know, start like critiquing other people. Let's come with an open heart, an open Bible, and pull into those things. So let, let me wrap this up and tell you what I think. I began talking about the three groups the, the Jews, the nations, and the, and the church. Here's what I think we're going to see in the, in the near to far future. I don't know. Let's talk about the church. I think the church has a mandate to preach the gospel to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Now, some people say Jesus could come back now. Do you know there are still over 2,000 nations without the Bible in their own language right now? Lauren Cunningham. Anybody heard Lauren Cunningham? The guy who started YWAM? He went to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago, and on his dying day, he called a whole bunch of pastors, and he's like, before I die, I want you to promise me you'll do everything you can to put the Bible in every language that exists. He's like, we can do this. If we have to raise a few million dollars, fine, but let's get the Bible everywhere on planet Earth. That's a good thing to do on your dying day, isn't it? And I believe the church has a mission to take the gospel north, south, east, and west, but also to take the gospel. There are people in, in Massachusetts who haven't heard the gospel. To take the gospel into our generation, into people groups, into everything. We have a mission not to be standing around like they did in Acts 1. When are you coming back, Jesus? When are you going to catch us away? That's not our question. Our question is, how can we share this good news? This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and then the end will come. So I think the destiny of the church is to fulfill the mission of God. I think God wants to change the church before he comes back. And I think that can happen quickly. I think God wants to change the church into a bunch of people who love to worship him into worshipers. I think the Lord wants to change the church into a people, not who argue and write on the internet about 
how everybody else is wrong, but who grow up in who we are in Christ Jesus, who find out our identity, our authority, our rights and privileges in Christ. Paul prayed that in Ephesians, Lord, open their eyes. Let them know the hope of their calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. I think Jesus is coming back, not for a perfect church maybe, but for a grown-up church that's walking in holiness and purity and righteousness and power and joy and worship. I think that's the destiny of the church. What's the destiny of the nations? Actually, let me talk about Israel. I, I check out my message last week. But I think, the I think God brought the people of Israel back to the land. I think that's actually one of the greatest miracles that the world has ever seen. It was a great miracle when God brought them out of Egypt and the Red Sea. Do you know, I think it was a greater miracle in 1948. It, it was a miracle that they even stayed. You know, if you scattered Americans or Brits all over the world, 200 years later, we wouldn't know who we were. You know, God, God scattered them, the Jewish people all over the world, and they kept their identity. They kept their ethnicity, and God has brought them, not all of them yet, but God brought them back to the land of Israel. And I believe God has a destiny for Israel. I think he wants to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And I think we're going to see nationwide revival in Israel. I think God is going to pull. Paul says there's like a, a blinder, like a veil over the eyes of the Jewish people when they read the Torah. They, they can't see who Jesus is. I was watching an interview yesterday with Ben Shapiro. I don't know if you saw Ben with a, a pastor communicating the gospel. And you can see him. He's sort of like, you know, struggling to like, how does that make sense? To see the truth behind this thing. I believe the Lord is going to pull that veil off of the eyes of the Jewish people and they're going to see the Messiah. And I believe there's going to be nationwide revival in Israel. What's God's destiny for the nations? It's really simple. God loves the nations. I said it last week, the call of Israel, when God chose Israel, it wasn't because he was saying, I love you and all of the rest of you can go to hell. What God was saying is to Israel is, I want you to be a nation of priests. I want you to show the world that I'm real. Show the world what it looks like to serve me. Show the world what it's looked like instead of paying endless taxes, high Massachusetts, to honor God with the first fruits and have the blessing of God on your life. And, and God has a destiny for every nation, but they all come through the God of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. And I, I believe God's plan for the nation, I think, God, I think we're going to see three things. I think we're going to see the gospel go all over the world like never before. And it's happening, guys. Come on, it's happening right now. Right now, for every one baby born on planet Earth, three people are born again today, right now. That's a good thing. There's only one place we're not really seeing that revival. It's in the West. Now, I think the Lord will change that. Maybe persecution will come and change some of that. I, I don't think we've got to believe things will always be as easy as they are, but bring it on if that's what it needs to be, Lord Jesus. So what, what's the destiny of the nations? I think we're going to see the gospel go all over the world. I think, number one, God wants the world to see him through his goodness. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. But number two, I think before this thing is over, God is going to allow judgments and his wrath or wrath, whatever. You know, there are some people who'll turn to God in, in times of goodness. There are some people it literally takes like judgment to wake them up. 
And if that's what it will be, I think God wants to save the world. I don't think the whole world will be saved, but I think he wants to give everybody the chance to see Jesus and either fall, to kiss the sun, lest he turn and strike you, Psalm 2 says. And I think either the world, I believe before Jesus returns, everybody on the earth will see the gospel fall on their knees and say, have mercy on me, I said, or they will clearly reject the gospel. Yeah. And I, I think lastly, I think the Bible really clearly teaches this. We're going to see the nations attacking Israel like never before and surrounding Israel from all sides and kind of going, we will wipe you off the face of the earth. And the Bible says the Lord himself will come and defend Israel. Hallelujah. Come on, let me tie all these threads up and we'll have some lunch. But how should we look at this? I, I would say don't be afraid of the book of Revelation. Read it, but it's okay to go like, huh? It's okay to go, Lord, I don't get this. I actually think at times if you say, Lord, I don't get this, he'll begin showing you things. I think we've got to treat other people with respect who see this a little differently than we do and not castigate them and insult them. And You're a false prophet, John. <laughs> Maybe. I don't think that's helpful. I think it actually dishonors God when we go around attacking people. And sometimes the differences are so small, you know. I think we should be saying, Lord, are the, why do I believe what I believe? Am I willing to have you change what I believe? Am I willing to grow? Have I, have I got a hungry heart more than I'm afraid what other people will say of me if I do this or change this? Or, you know, why, why am I really believing that? Come on, I'll finish with this, but let me tell you a quick story as I finish. Years ago, I was in India, in uh, the city of Trivandrum, in the south of India, doing a crusade. We're in the open air in a slum city with probably about 1,000, 1,500 lovely Indian people sitting on the floor Sunday evening. I'm preaching the gospel. And as I preach, I, I shouted out, Jesus rose from the dead. And my interpreter then said it in the local language. And when I said Jesus rose from the dead, it's like this wave went through the people like this. It wasn't, it wasn't invisible, but you could look like this little, in France we'd call it a frisson, like a little shiver, like, ooh, like a little poof, through the crowd. And I, I'm looking at it going like, was that just me? And my interpreter turned to me and he said, did you see that? I'm like, yeah. And he said, can we try it again? I'm like, yeah. So I, Jesus rose from the dead, and he's jumping about, you know, in the Malayal and the look like, and again it happens. And me and this, we're like, this is so cool. So we did it three or four times. Eventually, I did have to get on with my message, but, uh, and I remember going that evening to a little retreat place I was staying on top of a mountain. I, I kind of said, Lord, what happened? And here's what I think the Lord said to me, not in an audible voice, but here's what the Lord said to me. The Lord said, every time one of my children proclaims Jesus rose from the dead, there's like a little outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves it when we will tell people Jesus rose from the dead. The outpouring of the Spirit is connected with the proclamation that he is the Savior and rose. Amen? Can I tell you guys, I think a similar thing happens when the church cries out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. When even when we go to one another and say, Jesus is coming back. Do you know what? He says something in my heart and something in John's.
The Spirit and the bride say come. And I, I don't want to end in some mystical, like, weird way, but I think we, I, we don't say that enough. You know, the, the, is, it, is it the Greek or Hebrew word? I don't know, Maranatha. It means come, Lord Jesus. My point is God loves it when we remind ourselves. While he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as you see the day draw near. And I think, can I say that, again, I love America, but sometimes we, our lives are so comfortable and blessed and got a cool motorcycle and my cool jacket. Like, sometimes we, we, put, we put our roots down in this world, in our families, in our homes, in our, which is nothing, it's not wrong, but there should be this yearning in our heart, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, let the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Come, and I think when the church begins praying and saying and proclaiming, come Lord Jesus, there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit as well. Amen. Come on, why don't we stand on our feet and let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. You came, you came as a lamb. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Lord, I thank you. You're coming back as a lion. Hmm. I thank you. You're not coming back in, uh, in a stable in Bethlehem. You're not coming back as a meek and mild baby. You're coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I thank you. You're coming back and you will judge the world in righteousness. And Lord, I thank you the day will come when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, we don't, want to be, we don't want to be seeking you because of disaster or judgment. We want to be those wise virgin. Our heart cry is, come, Lord Jesus. Come and take us away. Come and rescue us from ourselves. Come and rescue us from this present evil world. And Lord, we long to see you face to face. I thank you. When we see you, we will be like you. And Lord, I thank you, Father. Thank you for all of our different viewpoints and our arguments and our perspectives. And I thank you. Give us a heart of humility that will honor others and that you are at work in others as well. Rescue us from our pride and our judgment of others that we think we disagree with. And Lord, I pray for an ever-increasing portion of revelation as we walk with you, the living God. And I speak your life, your love, your blessing on everybody gathered here and those watching as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Good. Thank you. Hey, I believe we have some food and coffee downstairs. If you'd like some prayer, our team will be up here in a moment. And if you need to run, have a wonderful week and happy Thanksgiving.